0: January is always a difficult month for space historians as it contains the anniversary of some of our darkest days. And this week, it's been 20 years since the space shuttle Columbia broke up on re entry, killing the seven astronauts on board.
1: So, to mark this today, we're talking to Jonathan Ward, the co writer of the award winning book, Bringing Columbia Home.
0: If you have anything you'd like to share with us about this episode, please do so via our social media pages at Space and Things One on Twitter. And at Space and Things Podcast on Instagram and Facebook, or via the contact form on our website.
1: But right now, this is episode 126 of the Space and Things Podcast. Oh Unbelievable. Unbelievable.
2: Unbelievable.
0: You are listening to Space and Things with Dave Giles and Emily Carney.
1: I'm Emily Carney. And I'm Dave Giles. And welcome to episode 126 of the Space and Things podcast. Before we get started, Emily, I meant to talk about this a couple of weeks ago. Did I see you doing something at the American Space Museum in Titusville?
0: I think we got mentioned in the in the the live stream for them because I, I came by the museum a few weeks ago and I, I just hung out there. I love the American Space oh, Museum it's such a cool place. I will give them a shout out any time of the week day because they're they're just amazing i love what they do they're a smaller more community museum they're not like a big smithsonian style museum but i think that's actually pretty awesome in itself because it's very oriented around the community and like titusville and the space coast and stuff like that so it's really cool but yeah they gave us a shout out on their uh stay curious show and i did go visit there a few weeks ago just to just to hang out i love uh i love hanging out there and i want to give a shout out to mark As well, Mark Marquette, I believe he's the community liaison there. He does a spectacular job.
1: We'll get him on at some point. I think that's a great idea. Yes! Uh, Anyone who's ever planning a visit to KSC, obviously Kennedy Space Center is amazing, but just over the water, over the bridges in Titusville is this wonderful little museum which has got amazing artifacts and the people in there are amazing. You can talk to any of them in there and they've got great stories and they know their stuff, so definitely, definitely get over there. Okay, so this is one of those episodes which is always difficult to know how to do. So hopefully we will get the tone right. 20 years ago on the 1st of February 2003, the Space Shuttle Columbia disintegrated over Texas as it attempted re-entry and the seven astronauts on board were killed. What followed was the largest ground search operation in U.S. history, and a post-flight investigation discovered that a piece of foam, which broke off the external tank when the shuttle launched, had severely damaged the left wing of Columbia, which caused the fatal accident. Bringing Columbia home is the inside story of the disaster and the recovery, and how the darkest hours can bring out the best of people. The book won the Space Hipster's Book Prize for the best book released in 2018.
0: Today, we're joined by Jonathan Ward, one of the co-authors of that book. We previously had Jonathan on the podcast along with astronaut Eileen Collins as he co-authored her incredible book, which came out a couple of years back now. And that is also worth checking out. Jonathan wrote Bringing Columbia Home with Michael D. Leinbach, who was the last launch director in the space shuttle program at Kennedy Space Center and who was responsible for overall shuttle countdown activities until the end of the program in 2011. Quoting the back of the book, Jonathan works to bring the thrill of the space program to life for the general public as a solar system ambassador for the Jet Propulsion Laboratory and a fellow of the Royal Astronomical Society. He is the author of two previous books on space exploration, Countdown to a Moon Launch, Preparing Apollo for its Historic Journey, and Rocket Ranch, the nuts and bolts of the Apollo Moon program at Kennedy Space Center. So let's talk to the excellent Jonathan Ward.
2: The very first night we were up there, just before we went to bed, I got to see, I, I took the time to watch a sunset. And a sunrise happens and 45 minutes later the sun sets. And then the sunrise 45 minutes later and then the sun sets. Well this one, just before we went to bed, I took time to look at. It. And I felt quite humbled by the whole thing, by the fact that here I was finally being allowed to realize this dream that I had for such a long time. And I can say that I certainly had a great feeling of thankfulness in in that.
0: So welcome back, Jonathan, and thank you for joining us again. So first, um, let's set the scene. So tell us of the motivation to write the story about Columbia's recovery. Uh,
2: I would have to say in all honesty, that it was a complete, uh, surprise to me that this came up. I was, uh, meeting with Mike Leinbach at the funeral of a mutual friend of ours who had been a, a, launch test conductor in the Apollo era. He, and he always said that Mike was the best person that he ever hired. Uh, I never got a chance to meet Mike while, uh, Norm was still around and it. uh, at uh, Norm's funeral, I recognized Mike went over and introduced myself and suggested we go out and have a couple of drinks and tell some stories and uh, about, our, about our mutual friend. And at the end of that lunch, Mike said, you know, I always wanted to write a book about Columbia, but I never had the discipline to do that. And I had the uh, sense, I guess, to say, well, let's talk about that. And we got together a couple of weeks later and started talking about it. But it, the original motivation was for Mike to tell the story. Of his team from Kennedy Space Center that went out to uh, recover debris and then come back and put it together. So that was the original motivation for the story, and then the story grew as the uh, as we got farther and farther into. It. And why do you think so many people
1: banded together to recover this space shuttle and its crew? Uh, many who perhaps didn't even have an interest in spaceflight at that time.
2: That's you know what's one of the really fascinating things about this, and we of course. Telling the story of Mike's team, this was people who all worked at Kennedy Space Center who had worked on Columbia, so they had a natural motivation. But in talking with astronaut Jerry Ross, he said, "You know, the real story is out in East Texas, where Columbia actually came down." And uh, to them, it was just—it was really fascinating. A lot of them didn't even realize there was a space shuttle going overhead that day, and they heard this tremendous uh, explosion, this this series of rumbles that went on for. 15 to 20 minutes it was basically eighty-four thousand pieces of the space shuttle breaking the sound barrier and the um, the the overlapping sonic booms of all of that so these people uh, you know thought it was everything from a pipeline explosion to trains colliding to jets colliding to uh the coming of uh uh the end of times you know the, or a nuclear explosion in in uh uh, New Orleans. So, you know, these folks, uh, of course, then as as pieces of the shuttle started coming down and as the astronauts were found later that day, uh, the first of the astronauts were found later that day, it became for them something very important for them to do. Uh, they they seemed to take that very personally, you know, and, and I think that's one of the the most touching things about this story was that it really was people who took personal ownership to try to bring these uh, the crew back home with dignity.
0: So bringing Columbia home deals with tragedy. And, and I know, you know, as a writer, tragedy is really hard to write about in a way that's tasteful and, and respectful. And bringing Columbia home really tells the story in a tasteful, respectful manner. And it tells really an oddly hopeful story that has an uplifting side, if, if that even makes sense. Did you and Mike Leinbach really expect the book to have that tone when you when you guys first started working on it?
2: That was actually one of the primary goals for the book from the very outset. Mike said, "I do not want to tell the story about what was going on in the cockpit at the time of the breakup. I don't want to talk about the condition of the astronauts when they were found. We don't you know we don't need to go into that at all. We need to talk about dealing with it with the tragedy and and uh, dealing with the human side of that. That was one of the things that I guess really impressed me about Mike as being the the consummate engineer and the launch director. You figure these are people who were probably not necessarily emotionally with it, but it was extremely compelling and talking with him from the from the very outset when he talked about the things that he needed to do to give his team emotional space to work during the reconstruction uh, of, the, of the shuttle in the hangar and also the people who were out in the field. He was very, very much in touch with what was going on with those folks and had his pulse on the emotions of his team for, uh, from the very beginning and had the right uh, mix of giving people space to to do what they needed to do to deal with grief that just uh, popped up at unexpected times but then also to celebrate things that went went well so um you know again we we deliberately wanted to make this as, as tasteful as possible mike made that commitment to the crew families that we were going to make this um you know this was not going to be a salacious book uh, of course that's the question we get a lot people ask uh, Want to get into the more gory details about things and we tell them that this is really not what we're here to, to tell the story about.
1: Yeah. We've had a couple of questions from some of our patrons, which I feel might fit in here. Sure. First of all, from Don and I, I feel like this does follow on quite nicely. Don Owen has said, Is there a special story from interviewing someone involved in the recovery, NASA or other, that did not make it into the book?
2: There are yeah, there are a number of stories. Uh, you know, it was funny, one of the things that I was reflecting on probably the biggest complaint that I get about the book is that there are too many people mentioned in there. And, um, you know, you, you run into the problem of we only had so many words we were allowed to put in the book. So uh, we there were some stories that we just had to, had to leave out because they didn't really advance the story overall. Uh, I wish we could have told more. And of course, as soon as the book came out, I meet more and more people who are like, gee, I wish I'd talked to that person because they have another fascinating story to tell. You know, when you have 24,000 people who were involved in this thing, there's going to be stories from everybody. And it's my hope that if you do have a Columbia story that we haven't captured, that you will record that and you know, save that. I'm hoping, uh, you know, that people will use that information to go to the Remembering Columbia Museum in Hill Texas. Uh, that seems to be a logical repository for a lot of uh, of the stories, or else the uh, Apollo Challenger Columbia Lessons Learned Program at NASA also collects a lot of this information. But yeah, there were a lot of really touching stories. There were some that were more personally identifiable than others. There were some that were a little too emotionally. Ranching. I mean, if you think this one is a story of grief, there were some stories I heard that I really we just felt we couldn't put in the book just to, uh, to spare the reader. Wow, there are a number of stories out there, but I, I'm I'm very happy with the ones that did make it in there into the book.
1: Yeah, absolutely, some some real buttes in there. Rachel Franklin uh, has also got in contact, and she said, first of all, thank you for writing such a comprehensive and respectful book about Columbia. I have been able to share the content with my students without worrying of anything inappropriate. Have any new parts, pieces, or debris been recovered in recent years? I have read new stories of new discoveries that may have changed the known facts, but
2: not all seemed credible. Okay. Yeah, there's nothing that we have found that has changed any of the facts. Uh, The latest piece that I'm aware of was a piece of tile that turned up in a farmer's field in Texas. I want to say it was three or four years ago, uh, he was he was turning over a field and found a piece of tile. Uh, I mean, we we very, very clearly have found the the pieces from around the uh, the left wing where the the breach in the wing occurred. And, and so it was very clear that that was the cause of the accident. So yeah, there was nothing that would have changed the um, that I'm aware of that would have changed anything. I, you know, I think there are probably still lots of pieces out there. I mean, you know, there are six powerheads, of the on the three engines, three of them have been recovered. Three of them are still out there, buried in the mud somewhere in Louisiana. Wow, those things hit the ground at Mach two and uh, buried themselves under probably fifteen feet of mud, and out in the middle of nowhere. So you never, you know, they may turn up someday. Yeah,
0: but it's miraculous that it looks like half of them are recovered.
2: The most important thing was finding that data recorder box that turned up, basically just sitting out in the middle of of nowhere, sitting out in the open, completely pristine. You could still read its uh, property ID tag and the tape was still intact inside. There was a camera that had been on the belly of the space shuttle, a film camera that had taken pictures of the external tank as it separated and NASA was trying to find that. And they thought that it might have come down right at the edge of the reservoir there. And and so there was a lot of searching that was done for that camera and that was never recovered.
0: So the Columbia recovery and subsequent investigation and aftermath was really different from that of Challengers. And, and if we go even further back, uh, Apollo 1. So as a leadership expert, uh, you also work in that field. Tell us why you think that is.
2: I think it, a lot of it has to do with you know, obviously the, the personality of the people who were involved, the, the leaders that are involved, I think in, in past years, and I certainly heard this from, from even the old hands in Apollo was that accidents out of the Cape were an embarrassment and things like that needed to basically just be buried and forgotten about. (laughs) And, uh, you know, there was, there was pressure on Mike to do that as well with Columbia after, um, after the reconstruction was done, you know, let's just put it in a silo like we did with Challenger. There's there's no need to preserve it. I think the compelling reason that Mike gave for making that material available was because it represented, I think it was 10 times the amount of material that had survived hypersonic reentry that had ever been recovered. So um, it, this was a, a fantastic learning laboratory to have all this material available. It became use uh, useful for things like designing the crew helmet uh, interface to the seats on the Orion spacecraft and things like that. So we learned a lot from that debris. Uh, there have been three PhDs that have been awarded based on study in Columbia debris. Wow. Uh, and so, yeah, Mike is extremely proud of that. And, and the other thing, of course, is that NASA doesn't make it mandatory, but it's strongly suggested for anybody who comes to work at the Cape that they tour the Columbia reconstruction room to to see the debris as a lesson learned for what happens if you make a bad decision or if you fail to make a decision or if you don't speak up when something is going on so this is uh you know they don't require contractors to do it but they strongly encourage people to go through that and and kind of recognize that there are consequences to your actions or lack of actions no matter what level you are within the organization very very powerful leadership lesson
1: absolutely uh, another one of our patrons todd oliver is is Sent in a comment, which I'm going to add a question to, because I think it's, it does lead on from what Emily just asked. Uh, and his comment says this, I only have a comment, which is that Challenger was treated as a national tragedy, while the loss of Colombia was largely ignored. I believe that this was due to the fact it was lost on descent, so the loss wasn't televised. I think this allowed the investigation to go under the radar, as the findings were even more damning than Challenger, as NASA had almost lost Atlantis years earlier. Do you think there is a disparity between how the two missions are remembered uh, by the general public? I know if you go to any of the space centres, obviously they're both very much honoured with respect equally, in my opinion. Uh, but do you think this th- this was largely ignored by the general public?
2: That's my contention. And it's funny that there's a YouTube video that I recorded uh, from one of the talks that I gave at Space Fest. And I start off by saying that most people don't remember Colombia. And I get a lot of angry comments back from folks saying, of course, people remember Colombia. But I've asked even my relatives, I said, tell me what you remember about the Columbia accident. And they can't recall what the image, what the image was. We, of course, we had that that image of, of Challenger that's burned in everybody's mind. There is a similar type of image from Colombia that people might recognize when they see it. So I, I do believe that that it is not as well remembered as Challenger. Part of what I also do when I when I give a lot of talks about Colombia is that I remind people of the context of what was going on, that we were, we were 16 months after 9-11. Mm-hmm. We were in, at war in Afghanistan, and we were in the middle of debate about I- invading Iraq. And in fact, the day that that uh, black box was discovered was the day that we had invaded Iraq. Wow! And so they broke into um, they broke into the coverage of that bombing of Baghdad to announce that they'd found that thing. But that's why we don't remember it, I, to to my knowledge. What was kind of embarrassing was that at the 15th anniversary uh, commemoration service in Hill, Texas the congressman from that district was saying of course we all remember what happened when Columbia was launched and it blew up after it launched and the pieces fell in Texas and and people were just like looking around each other and, and saying oh my god so you know even he didn't remember exactly what had happened oh boy.
1: <laughs> well obviously you had the Christian McAuliffe effect with the Challenger disaster which you didn't have with the Columbia one though right if
2: I may interrupt for just a second actually you know it's funny because there were two other national heroes who we don't get as much recognition here in the states. You know, Chavla, uh, she had a huge following in in India, and of course, Ilan Ramon. There was a big backlash from from Israel against the United States that we had not done enough to protect Ramon, mm-hmm. uh, uh, even though uh, we probably had more security for that launch than there had ever been. Uh, for any previous or, or subsequent launch,
1: yes. Sorry, right. I, I probably meant more within uh, within the US, which is what we yeah. I felt we were talking about. But of course, yeah, there mm-hmm. is that that global impact as well.
0: So it's nearly been twenty years since that that awful morning that you know we learned of Columbia's breakup. You know, uh, many of us woke up to that news uh, in the United States. I, I don't know how Dave found it out, but it, it happened early in the morning here. So, what do you think the biggest uh, lesson learned is from the entire Columbia story, whether it be from launch to recovery?
2: Well, I think if you know if you go back to the um, to the Columbia Accident Investigation Board report, it, it really is it's about that this was as much a failure of organizational culture as it was about the hardware that you know despite nasa having learned a lot of lessons after the challenger accident about how you have to make sure that debate happens and that people who have concerns can elevate that over the course of 20 years a a culture begins to disintegrate and deteriorate again and uh, you become prey to the same pressures of you know maybe not explicitly launch fever but you know if you've only got so much time to get something done you know we were trying to get the international space station completed or the US portion of it completed by the next year and the and the space shuttle program was had been grounded for several months because of uh, technical issues so NASA was behind the ball we had technical issues that had cropped up they had caused damage on previous flights but nothing serious enough to to warrant in NASA's mind, grounding the program. And if you go back and look at it, they certainly should have grounded the space shuttle. Two launches before Columbia, a piece of foam came off and dented one of the solid rocket boosters that was recovered. That was dispositioned as saying, you know, hey, it survived. We got to keep pressing on. So to me, the the big lesson learned from that is that you've got to find ways to to step back and take a look at what kind of pressures you're putting yourself under, what kind of assumptions you're making that could be putting a program at risk. One of these things, okay, we're in such a hurry to get the space station built. You know, we can't afford a delay to fix this problem. Okay, what happens? Then you have this accident and the space shuttle program's grounded for two years or three years. You know, So you know, guess what? You're, you're late now anyway, and you've lost people's lives, and you've lost a national asset.
1: Do you feel like NASA really has learned those lessons now. It was interesting, I was just finally finishing off Eileen's book. I know we spoke to you about that so long ago, but I've had so many books to read and I've been working my way through it. And I feel like she, you and her handled that chapter brilliantly about the, the aftermath. But do you feel like NASA learned from from that as they go into Artemis? Obviously, we had all the, the delays and they're actually taking the steps to make sure things go well. There's now a bigger time difference between the Challenger and Columbia disaster than Columbia are now. Is there a worry that they've forgotten those lessons? And maybe even if NASA hasn't forgotten them, is there a concern that the private industries which are now taking over have forgotten the lessons or do not know those lessons?
2: You know, that's that's a a great question. And, you know, if you talk informally uh, off the record to a lot of the NASA hands, you know, they're all saying, that they're really concerned uh, about what's going to happen the first time spacex loses somebody or blue origin loses somebody or virgin does you know and, and virgin did lose one of its test pilots uh, in, a, in a test and that's and that kind of thing is going to happen space is a dangerous environment i hope nasa has learned its lesson but it's one of those things that you know you just can't do it one time and, and walk away from it you have to have com- continued reminders and refreshing you have to have a way for people to be able to to elevate if something is not going the way it's supposed to go how do you get that concern elevated and taken care of people that i talk to of course there's the ones that you talk to who said hey we knew this phone was a big issue but there's also how many times has has this same person or another person been waving the red flag 30 other times and nothing did happen as a result of that so as a as a leader it's very tough to make that kind of balancing act that you know you are in fact listening to this person you're not shutting them down uh if they do have a valid concern or you know we're getting it checked out that's a really tough thing to do especially with with um, systems that are as complex as our our space program is uh you know i hope that the private industry is taking this into account i can't remember who it was that told me this but he said that, that that elon musk has said if anybody Anybody on the launch team here sees any th- reason why we shouldn't launch you are to get in touch with me personally immediately and let me know that which i think it's just a fantastic thing to have that that come up you know the the, the problem with with the challenger accident was the launch director never even knew that there had been these concerns being raised the night before that never got elevated at all to the level of management. You just can't have things like that happening. And so it sounds to me like that at least SpaceX is hearing that. And I'm hoping that Blue Origin will be hearing that as well.
1: When you were writing that book with Eileen, and in particular, as I mentioned, the chapter about Columbia, I thought was really, really good. And obviously the return to flight as well. Do you know if and I'm not expecting you to speak on her behalf or to, to reveal anything, but do you know if people like her or other astronauts of her class or her generation uh, are still in contact, even if they're not at NASA, are still in contact with people there to to rem- let them know. I'm sure there are people that still work at NASA that were there, but just to remind them of the lessons that, w- that were learned.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think that's a that's a really interesting point. We were talking about Walt Cunningham the other day, and Eileen was saying that she first met Walt Cunningham back in the 1990s, and the first thing he said to her was, "You astronauts need to stop doing the PR stuff, and you need to be going to the factories, and you need to be going to the centers and talking to the people and reminding them about safety and quality." That was the thing that the that the Apollo astronauts, the Gemini and Mercury astronauts did was to get personally involved like that, and I think it's it's helpful to have reminders uh, like that to have people get. Get back in touch with the folks who are manufacturing this one of the things that mike mike lineback talks about is he says um and i'm getting off the question off the question a little bit Here, but mike says that as launch director he said after columbia he said the question i always asked myself when i saw the the vehicle out there on the stack and we're going through the final countdown am i willing to commit these seven husbands wives mothers fathers Sisters, brothers, am I willing to commit these seven people to the most dangerous thing they've ever done in their lives? And am I absolutely sure that we're ready to go? And he said, I, if I didn't feel in my gut that that was where we were going, I was not about to make that launch. And so I hope that we see similar types of things going on, you know, at Blue Origin and SpaceX and things mm-hmm. like that. I, you know, I think Eileen, uh, if asked, would be glad to go back to some of these places. I don't know that she's toured. Michou, since uh, they started, you know, rebuilding Artemis out there, I had the the great fortune to be on the uh, the astronaut bus with her at the astronaut hall of fame banquet last year. We drove out to the uh, to the Artemis launch pad while it was sitting there, and I have a picture yes. of Eileen just pre- uh, pressed up against the window taking a picture with her cell phone of Artemis because I I think. You could just hear all the astronauts on the bus kind of going like, yeah, would you get on that? Would you? I'm not sure. Would, you know, I think it might be a fun ride. You know? The consensus seemed to be that, that they, would, they would take the ride if it was offered to them. Yeah, I so, bet. Of course. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And
1: moving on to more positive things about you. Uh, obviously, you've written a number of books in the past that we're, we're, we're very fond of. What's next?
2: What would you like to see next? I'm always <laughs> <laughs> Oh wow. Oh my goodness. That's tough. The last two books just fell into my lap and so uh, you know it's funny because the the one with Eileen just happened because of COVID. You know, if it hadn't been for COVID, she would never have had the time to write it down. My agent doesn't want me to get pigeonholed as the writer of other people's memoirs. He thinks I need to write something on my own, which I think is a good idea, but it's of course tough to come up with a, an idea for that i'm thinking something astronomy related i'd like to maybe nice. do a book about the big the big observatories Ooh. in the world i think would okay. be kind of fun to, like a coffee table book about those or something might be fun to do
0: that would be awesome i would definitely yeah. get that because i don't know much about astronomy so that would be cool
2: mm. a good way to write off some trips to the uh, Azores <laughs> yeah, places like yeah. canary islands yeah there you oh, go yeah, you yeah. Yeah. yeah
0: there you go exactly
2: If you don't mind, I would just like to say thank you very much to the people who supported us throughout the year. I mean, one of the things or the the last five years, it's been five years since the book came out. It's in more than 40,000 people's hands right now, which makes me extremely proud. Wow. Uh, We've we've got a feature film that's under development, which I'm really excited about the story of unlikely heroes and strong people who. Fought their emotions and stepped up to a challenge. So, you know, when I go back and think about the things that I'm most proud of in my life, this has got to be at the top of the list. You know, I I have to say my kids and grandkids, but professionally speaking, working on this book has been the best thing of my entire life, and I'm so honored and so pleased that uh, that I got a chance to do it.
1: When you were writing it, were you aware yourself that that might be how you felt in five years? Did you think you might be writing an award-winning book?
2: You know, it's, I I hadn't thought about that. Uh, I think we were, I was just trying to work on it, try to try to pull all the stories together more than anything else. The main concern that I had, and this sounds kind of corny, but going back to the question about trying to be tasteful after we finished the book and and submitted it, I went down to Kennedy space center and I stood in front of Columbia's windows and the forever remembered thing. And I tried to imagine the crew looking back at me through the windows there. And Telling, my, you know, asking myself, did I do everything I could to tell their story and to, and to, would they be proud of what this has done? That's what I was most concerned about. And to me, the biggest fear I had was how the families were going to react to the book. And the day that I first met Evelyn Thompson, uh, Evelyn husband Thompson, she was the widow of Columbia's commander. It was the day before the 15th anniversary of the accident. And she said to me, will you autograph copies of the book from me and my kids? And to me, that was the biggest honor I could have ever possibly gotten that she, that she uh, felt that way about it. So that to me was all I cared about was that we told the story. Yeah.
1: Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for for coming and talk to us about it. I'm sure most of our listeners probably have a copy or read it, but if they haven't, they really need to get a copy of this book. I mean, yeah, I
0: I think I've got two or three copies. My
1: girlfriend, uh, gravitated towards that book. She's not a space person at all and she was hooked. When she read the first chapter, she was absolutely hooked. Uh, and I think that's the power of this, this story. You mentioned 9-11 and, there's some, uh, and the fact you're making a feature film th- of this recovery reminds me of the musical Come From Away. Do you know mm-hmm. about that musical, the musical about the Newfoundland Island that, that all the planes arrived at? And, and inherently, mm-hmm. when when people do things against the odds or when bad things happen and people can show the true nature of humanity i think that story is always worth telling and inspiring to find out about whether it's through book film or musical theater i think those stories always connect with people uh, so thank you so much for for bringing this to everyone and sharing all those stories that you managed to get into the book i think it's uh, it's wonderful
2: thank you so much for having me on it's always a pleasure to to talk with you all and uh, look forward to seeing you uh, again sometime real soon absolutely absolutely for me it was very far fetched to think um i'd get to fly on the space shuttle because i lived in india in a very small town and um forget about space i didn't even know if my folks were going to let me go to the engineering college and that was the immediate goal you know
1: I mean, that was just a wonderful interview. Listeners, I said it at the end there, if you've not got this book, you have to have it and read it. It's the most positive way you could remember this incident, isn't it?
0: It is. It really is. I, I said this in the interview in one of the questions, but it's oddly a very hopeful and uplifting book at the end of the book. because it. And I don't want to spoil too much of the book for people who have not read it yet, because you definitely have to just go out and order it or go get it. But, I mean, it's really a beautiful way of showing how even in the midst of this awful, frankly awful tragedy caused by negligence, let's just say it, negligence, Mm. these thousands of people could band together and try to make something positive from it and try to recover as much of it as possible. And I think in the end, they recovered 40% of the orbiter, which is to me just, it's not a miracle because it's a lot of hard work. But it seems miraculous because it's just like, that's an awful lot of a vehicle that broke up at a hypersonic speed. I mean, you got to think about that. And like Jonathan said, the portions they did get back of the vehicle were very helpful in studying, you know, hypersonic breakups and stuff like that. So something positive did come out from this horrible tragedy. It is a very uplifting book. And and again, I have to say about this book is it's very, it's not morbid. It doesn't focus on any of the unpleasant stuff. And it's not that I want to deny what happened because some, I've gotten in arguments with this about people. Some people like to focus on that stuff. And I'm like, I don't see the point. To me, it's not helping the families. They don't want to think about this. They don't want to think about their loved one going through something awful. And some people disagree with me and uh, whatever. They can continue to disagree with me, but I feel the book is very tasteful and it's a very great tribute to the, the seven who lost their lives on it. I agree. And Columbia itself, the spaceship.
1: Yeah, because that is a weird thing, isn't it? Obviously, we mourn the lives of the crew that are, that were lost, but we also will have memories of that space shuttle and the other crews that had flown on it and the missions it had done and the things it had achieved. And I suppose it is a weird thing to say, but we do mourn the loss of that as well, don't we?
0: Yeah. Hail Columbia, uh, the the space shuttle movie from the 80s. I mean, that's still like one of my top shut movies, not even a space movie, but just a movie of all time because it was just so gorgeous. The launch sequence in that movie is just, it's only beaten by the Apollo 11 movie, yeah. the launch sequence in it. I mean, it's just exquisitely beautiful and it's just power. Like if you turn that, That volume up, your your speakers are going to be gone, you know, basically, because it's so incredible. And I I hate saying this because it sounds very callous, but I remember when Columbia was lost all those years ago, obviously I was upset because people had died. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, all I cared about was the orbiter, but there was that part two that I really was like, man, that's the first shuttle. You know, that was the one that Young and Crippen flew on back in the day. You know, that was the I wouldn't say the Pathfinder, but it was like you know, sort of a Pathfinder shuttle. It was the developmental shuttle. They, you know, where they kind of figured out how to use it in space. And it's just, there is an element of, they also lost a great vehicle as well.
1: Yeah, for sure. I was 17 years old when when this happened. And, you know, there are those times in your life when you'll always remember where you were. It was a Saturday afternoon and I was around my friend's house. And we were there to play the new Lord of the Rings game that had just come out. And we went to turn on the TV to load up the game. And this was what was on the news. And I was just like, what? That, what? This can't be right. This can't be right. Yeah. You know, I remember exactly where I was standing in that room and all that, you know, I can... Vividly remember the, the sensation and the tingles down your spine of what's going on. Yeah. and um, mm-hmm. It will always stay yeah. with me, I think. It will always stay with me.
0: Yeah, I'm still getting tearing up thinking about this because I can't believe it's been this long. But at the same time, it, it seems like yesterday because it doesn't seem like it. It seems like it just happened. I, yeah, I remember I was 25. I was getting out of the Navy like a couple months later. So I wasn't really doing much at the time. And I actually had a weekend off and it was Saturday. And like early in the morning, I'm guessing around nine o'clock, I'm guessing here, this is, it's been a few years. The phone started just ringing off the hook and I'm like, what the hell? So the first ring, I just ignored it. I was like, I'm half asleep. I was trying to sleep in, you know, I I didn't sleep a lot during the week. I got up at, usually during the week I got up at, you know, 4 a.m. to go to work. So I was like, I'm just going to sleep and I'm going to ignore that. Then it starts ringing again. And I'm like, OK, after the when it started doing it the third time, I was like, I got to pick up the phone. Somebody something bad has happened, like either something bad happened at the base. There's been a terrorist attack, something something bad is going on. So I picked it up and my sister had left a message on my phone. It was like, hey, M, I'm really sorry to tell you this, but something happened at the space shuttle. You need to cut on the TV. So I did. And there it was. I'm glad I heard it from my sister. <laughs> before I just cut the TV on and figured it out, you know, because I think I think having her tell me about it kind of softened it a bit. Like, mm. now I at least know what to expect, you know. I, I knew something bad had happened, but um, I think I watched TV for, like, the rest of the day, and I think I went out that night with, like, friends of mine, and I just didn't have it in me. Like, I ended up just being like, guys, I can't do this, and I ended up just hanging out by myself in, like, a coffee house for the rest of the night, just... Just sitting and drinking coffee by myself, yeah. You know? but yeah, I'll never, I'll never forget it. Yeah, I'm, I'm pretty sure you were very young when this happened, but it's the same thing when Challenger happened. I'll never forget that. Yeah, see, I I, I, mean, I was just, seven
1: months old, so, so th- I think that's yeah. why. To me, in, in many ways, Columbia <laughs> is more real because yeah. the '90s astronauts were my generation of astronauts. They're the ones that I yeah. grew up trying to find stuff out about which was hard for, for me over here but that's why I get excited by the fact we've spoken to Eileen Collins and, and Susan Kiran yeah. and, and, and Mike Massimino and so on and so forth because they're the, they're the names and the faces that I recognize from the yeah. missions and so on and so forth to me Challenger is something that happened in a book I know it didn't but do you know what I mean that was that was something I read about
0: it's like Apollo 1 to me. Like yeah. everything I know about Apollo 1 is from reading like Jonathan Ward. He he wrote a book about the spaceports and stuff. And there's a he actually wrote a, um, a very good kind of a breakdown of what happened during Apollo 1. So that's how Apollo 1 is to me. I, I really only know it from what I've read about it. I can't really say what it was like at the time. But, you know, or what it was like to hear that news, yeah. you know, but Absolutely. yeah, I totally get it.
1: Uh, yeah, we remember the news breaking of oh, I do, of Columbia that I would never have done for any, uh, any of the other disasters. So it's it, it certainly, I feel yeah. it a little bit, perhaps a little bit more. Um, there's, a, there's a couple of things I want to mention, I, a few names I just mentioned there which made me remember this. Clay Anderson's podcast, The Ordinary Astronaut, he was one of the family escorts for the Columbia mission, STS-107. And he tells the story really well, in his book as well, of that process and what they were trying to do and what they continue to do, their relationship with the family still. And the, on the podcast, you hear the emotion him and his wife talk about, about it on the podcast. And it's one of the most moving things I've ever listened to on a podcast. So I, I will put a link to that uh, in the show notes. I think it's very much worth listening to. But yeah, I recently, uh, on audiobook, both Eileen Collins with Jonathan Ward and also Mike Massimino's book, and they both talk about... Where they were when they found out what they were supposed to be doing, how close they were to or weren't weren't to the crew, their relationships with the families, and so on and so forth. And every time you read something like that, every time you hear these people talk about it, it hurt. And it should have, and not that it shouldn't have done. It's no surprise that. But yes, we just spoke about how Columbia was a great spaceship, but God, those pe- those people and the families, yeah. and oh yeah, and and, and again, that's why. But Bringing Columbia Home is such a great book as I'm going to bring it back full circle there because the, the respect that they had for the families and, and I love that story that Jonathan told about yeah. when it, before it came out, going to, to visit the the memorial at KSC and looking through that window pane and, and saying, yeah. have I done you right? That was powerful. Man, that was powerful. Yeah,
0: yeah um, uh, I got saying in my eyes right now thinking yeah. about that. That's, Yeah. One thing I do want to mention is that Mike Mullane, who was an astronaut in the '80s, who had he had retired by uh, Columbia, he was had been retired for a while, but he's talked about Columbia uh, a few times in Space Hipsters mainly because his uh, one of his space flights, STS twenty seven, suffered the worst uh, foam strike with damage before STS one hundred seven, and they they did reenter. Successfully, But they had a uh, gigantic hole in the in the shuttle in the orbiter. I mean, just big tiles tile strike really bad. Um, the pictures of it are I'm like, how did they get how did they make it? I mean, just nuts. But Mike has said, you know, back then, and I want to state that I'm not trying to, you know, crap on NASA or anything like that. But This was how NASA operated back then as far as risk management was concerned. But he was basically saying back then the attitude was, well, oh, wow, how nice. You know, the, the tile system is the thermal protection system is that robust that it can stand a tile strike like that. And Mike was like, what we should have been saying at the time was, look how fragile this system is. Look at this gigantic hole in the orbiter you know, this isn't acceptable. We need to fix this. And that's something that I always remember because, and it goes back to what I think what Jonathan was talking about in management and how we look at things, how sometimes, you know, it's easy to look at things maybe the wrong way. But I think at the time, and I want to be very specific at the time, that was their viewpoint. Well, it's happened before. Nobody's died, you know, and, and, the system was robust enough to take a hit, so it should be okay. You can't really go by that. That's not really a good safety method. Even as far back as the 80s, this was a known issue, and it took a while for NASA to really get with the program on on fixing that. You know, yeah,
1: not right, just not right. I want to end this little section on something a little bit more positive. Recently, yes, I found out that. Willie McCall's, Willie McCall was the pilot on on STS 107. His son has become, one of his sons has become an incredible photographer and videographer who's shot Vogue covers and music videos. His name's Cameron McCall. And his work is just outrageously good. Uh, and I found this out, right? Someone I know, who I used to teach guitar, her name is Suki Waterhouse. She released a a music video, and it said, directed by Cameron McCall. And I was like, McCall? There can't be many McCalls. And I I clicked on it, and I was like, no way! It's actually Willie McCall's son. How cool is that? And I just thought, well played, sir. You've had a tough... You've had a tough start to your life, but you've gone on and done something really, really good with yourself. So fair play. I like that. I think that was a positive positive thing I thought I'd just share at the end there.
2: I'm excited to be a test subject because I think that's how we get answers is by studying people. And um, as a physician, I understand how important it is to collect data on people. This mission is just extremely exciting. And I I still feel very fortunate to be assigned to this mission.
1: So, Emily, what's caught your eye in spaceflight since last week?
0: Oh, well, I think this caught everybody's eye last week in spaceflight. Uh, Buzz Aldrin turned 93, <laughs> and not only did he turn 93, he re- got married again to a doctor. I, I'm probably not saying her name correctly, and I apologize, uh, Anka Far. So um, congratulations to the new newlyweds. And that reminds me of the time that me and Rusty Schweikert got married in Jamaica at a Rasta ceremony, but we only were married nine days. Sorry, Rusty. I love you, but it didn't quite work out. I still got the ring, though. So he let me keep the ring. I'm kidding. I was never married to Rusty Schweikert. I don't want that going on his Wikipedia or something like that. So.
1: Yeah. Knowing my like. Luck- yeah. quote. Yeah. Episode 126. <laughs> Space and Things podcast. <laughs>
0: yeah. I'm going to get sued by Rusty Schweikert. Like, God, Rusty's going to be like, what the hell did you do? I love you, Rusty. If you're, if you're out there listening, I love you. I'm just kidding. I love you. Not in that way. So, yeah.
1: The, the, this buzz story definitely caused uh, your Spaceships Hipsters admins a few headaches then.
0: Yes, it did. Um, We had probably, oh God, I, I couldn't even count. Everybody reposted it and some of the comments were a little um interesting. That's all I'm going to say. I'm not going to repeat some of the comments that we had to delete because they were a little crazy. But um, they were interesting to say the least. So yeah, that did cause us some a few headaches for a few days when the announcement flashed that he'd gotten married, I was like, oh, God, we're going to have the worst night. We're going to have the worst night. (laughs) We are going to have the worst evening on Space Hipsters ever because, like, we're going to have to just get rid of a million comments that are insane. But seriously, though, um, 93. 93, Good age. Yeah.
1: Well done, Buzz. Well done. And if he's happy, then that's all that matters, isn't it? Do you know what I mean?
0: Exactly, yeah. And I I hope when I'm 93, I'm still you know, moving forward with my life if, I, if I'm if i hoping I can make it to that age. So, so Dave, what have you been looking at this
1: week? A few things, actually. I'm going to be a bit cheeky and pick more than one. However, the first of which I did put on our Twitter and Facebook, so I won't go into too much detail, and that was that Tim Peake has retired, and obviously for us UK folk, that's a big one. He's uh, going to carry on working as an ambassador for both the UK Space Agency and ESA, and to be honest, he's been doing that job. I'll be honest, I was a bit surprised by this. Yeah. I generally thought we were going to see him on, on either a SpaceX Dragon capsule or, or the Starliner capsule over the next couple of years, or even do one of the Artemis launches. I was really surprised that, that this has happened. So the quote on Tim's Twitter was, I've always believed in moving forward and, and embracing new challenges. Even if you don't know what's around the corner, it keeps things interesting. My years with ESA have been a fantastic phase of my life and I look forward to remaining part of the ESA family as an ambassador. Space is such an exciting and dynamic sector to worked in now more so than ever. It's a privilege to work with talented people who are so passionate about what they do. And as for getting back to space again, never say never.
0: Yeah, he could fly on one of these uh, commercial type missions and stuff, and who knows, he might. We might see him on the moon. You never know.
1: <laughs> Absolutely. So yeah, uh, that, that that was a that was a big story, and uh, especially in this country, and I, it probably should have been bigger in this country, if I'm honest. But I, it it does make sense. There's new astronauts around and all that kind of stuff. But the, what really caught my eye, Emily, there was two things, and they're connected. Number one, the Saturn One B rocket at the rest stop in Alabama. You know, you see this story?
0: Yes, you've you've seen that on rocket, highway right? Highway
1: 65, yeah, I have seen that rocket, yeah. Have you ever seen it? Yeah. Yep,
0: I've seen it, I've seen if it. If you
1: drive south from Nashville on a Highway 65, you will eventually reach the rest stop. And you just drive up to it, it's amazing. Yeah. Obviously, the Saturn 1B rocket was the rocket that was used for Apollo 7 and the three crewed Skylab missions and the Apollo Soyuz mission. So, it's got some good pedigree after 40 years of of being at this rest stop, it's deteriorated to such a place where it's not safe for it to be standing up. So it's been moved and taken down. They think the restoration, if they can restore it at all, would cost $7 million. They're not going to spend that money. So I think this might be another thing we see scrapped, which will be a real shame because obviously there's not many of these rockets left. And this has been a landmark. People love talking about driving past that rocket. And loads of people used to send me photos when they were driving past it. So I, I know it's uh, something that people have got from memories of, and no one likes to see that go. But obviously, also, it's a real piece of history, and that being scrapped is never, never good. But obviously, these things cost money. And when push comes to shove, we'd spend the money, but we're not in control of that purse, and not enough people will spend the money.
0: Yeah, I don't see people donating to something like that, and it does suck because I I have been to that before, and it was really cool to see, you know. And it was it's a it is a landmark, you know. People talk about driving past it, and oh, the rocket, you know, yeah. on the border of Huntsville and or on on the border of Nashville and Alabama, and all that, you know. People talk about it, and it is sad, but at the same time, I'm like, it isn't in good shape. It's been out in the elements for forty years. My concern is you know, I don't want it to hurt nobody. You know, I don't want, I wouldn't have wanted it to collapse and hurt a child or hurt an adult, you know, just anybody in the area, you know, that, that would have been pretty bad. So I understand why they, they took it down, even though, you know, I'm not happy about it, but I understand why it was necessary.
1: For sure. Someone online this week, someone in hipsters was talking about the idea of just putting it in the botanical gardens in Huntsville and letting it become overgrown and a bit of an art project. Like Even that, I think, would be cool. I just hope it doesn't just end up in a scrap heap or completely like other things we have seen in the past. I think there is a chance for us to at least use it in some way... Yes, it will deteriorate more, but if it can be used within the community somehow, some some way, I think that would be really lovely.
0: Oh, I agree. I I think if there was a way you could at least keep it in the community somehow, that would that would be awesome.
1: There is another story which I found on the Collect Space website when I was looking up the the Saturn One B story, which has come out recently, which I had completely missed, and this is amazing. Right the. F- I'm reading from that article now. The first US rocket stage to be discovered after its launch has landed a new home not far from where it lifted off almost 60 years ago. The Cape Canaveral Space Force Museum on Thursday, January 19th took delivery of the booster segment that helped launch NASA astronauts Gordon Cooper and Charles Pete Conrad on Gemini Titan 5 GT5 wow. mission on August the 21st, 1965. The 27 foot-long eight-meter section of the Titan II rocket first stage has been at the U.S. Space and Rocket Center in Huntsville, Alabama. The first U.S. rocket stage to be recovered after its launch has landed a new home, and I think that's really cool. Uh, So how how cool is that?
0: Yeah, because to my knowledge, there aren't many Titan parts like Gemini Titan II stuff. There's not a lot of that left. So that is really awesome, and plus there's not really a lot of, like, launch infrastructure left from those flights, you know, because I-, I hate saying this, and I know you agree with me on this, so I know we're, you know, copacetic about this. Man, nobody appreciates G- the Gemini program. Like, uh, that's, absolutely. Nobody appreciates that. That's one of those programs that it's, like, another, it's almost like Skylab part two, you know, that, yeah. you know, nobody appreciates it because it, di- it wasn't around that long, and it was, like, you know, it was between Mercury and Apollo, so it's not as glamorous, even though it is freaking glamorous as hell. I'll shut up. I get very passionate about this. I would get fired from every job I had if I just spent all day looking at Gemini photos, like because they're still incredible. They're the still top, futuristic right. to me. Like they're it's still like looking at all the rendezvous and stuff. I'm like this stuff. This still looks like science fiction. I mean, even though it happened well over 50 years ago, I mean, they're just beautiful photos. Yeah. So I love the fact that coming back to the topic, I love the fact that you know there's a piece of that history back where it launched back in the day. That is
1: awesome. You know, these these museums have only got so many resources, and the fact that they're able to keep this one, keep this big bit of history preserved, I think is great. And then finding a new home from it, fantastic. So positive story. Even though the the, the other the Saturn rocket story is not so positive.
0: Thank you for listening this week. Uh, It's such a sad time of year for us, but we hope that this episode might have contained a little bit of hope through the sadness. We'll be back with more Space and Things next week.
1: Yeah, we're in the middle of planning our activities for the next few months, but don't worry, in space, no one can hear us skiing. Space and Things has been brought to you by And Things Productions.